Welcome to this uh, very special session of the Writers Guild with Tariq Ali. Of the millions of words that spewed forth in the wake of 9-11, it was a single, simple sentence that uttered by Tariq Ali that has stayed with me the longest, a startlingly unsentimental assessment that cut through the tsunami of emotion that swept across the globe. The attacks on New York and Washington were more spectacular than important, Tariq told an interviewer, explaining that there was no correlation between the size of an explosion and the number of deaths and its political and military significance. Wow, this guy is brave, I thought. The mood in those days uh, and weeks following 9-11 was so incendiary, so fired up with patriotic fervour that I wondered, whether, wondered if Tariq would make it through to Christmas. I was similarly concerned for Susan Sontag, who in The New Yorker declared, America got what it deserved after decades of imperialist exploitation. This was, this was the notion of blowback. It was his calm, coolly analytical, historically informed approach to the, to the emotionally infla, uh, emotion, inflammatory, to the most emotionally inflammatory, inflamed of situations that made Tariq Ali compulsory reading and listening in the years following the attack and the invasion of Iraq for anyone desperate to look beyond the headlines and discover what is really going on. While the commentariat and blogosphere were seething with arguments for and against going to war, Tariq was quietly explaining that the real problem was his homeland, Pakistan, not Iraq. If only they had listened. Tariq brings the same lack of, sentiment, uh, lack of sentimentality and informed clear-sightedness to his latest book, uh, The Obama Syndrome. One would naturally assume that one of the world's leading non-white intellectuals would welcome America's first mixed-race president. After centuries of exploitation, brutality and depression, surely a thinker and activist who has spent all of his adult life fighting on the side of the downtrodden would greet the elevation of Barack Obama to the White House with, uh, with glee. But no, Tariq does not care if the leader of the world's last remaining superpower is black or white, man or woman. He wants the US leader to have the fortitude to bring about genuine change, not play, pay lip service to it. Instead of, yes, we can, Tariq wants, yes, we bloody well will. While Barack Obama has crumbled in the face of Republican and corporate deception, power and manoeuvring, the same cannot be said for Tariq, who has maintained the rage ever since his days as one of the most famous and influential leaders of the anti-war movement of the 1960s and early 70s. His contemporaries may have been absorbed by mainstream politics, the academy or big business, but Tariq has continued to speak out and to write expanding beyond political essays and books to filmmaking, the novel, theatre and literary criticism. Tariq's range is dizzying with his political intelligence and historical knowledge enlivening and enriching so many different forms. The attack on the Twin Towers pushed Tariq's already remarkable career into a new phase in which his attention moved towards the Middle East, yielding a remarkable series of books including The Clash of Fundamentalisms, Bush in Babylon, Rough Music, Blair, Bombs, Baghdad, London, Terror, uh, The Jewel, uh, uh, Pakistan on the Flight Path of American Power. Not surprisingly, he's one of the media's go-to guys during this remarkable period in which um, corrupt American-backed uh, regimes are tumbling across the Middle East, an event that Tariq has been predicting for some time. We are fortunate enough to have a man at the centre of the debate and not an ageing rocker on a last uh, farewell tour. 
Tariq has also managed to write a magnificent memoir of his years as an activist, which takes in his friendship with Malcolm X, his visit to Vietnam at the height of the war, a close encounter with Che Guevara just before his capture and murder in Bolivia, um, being invited to dinner by Marlon Brando, and not being able to stay overnight for dinner because he had previous appointments with Henry Fonda and Laurence Olivier. And having not one but two anthems of our era written in his honour, Street Fighting Man and Power to the People. Clearly, Tariq, you didn't make enough of an impact on Bob Dylan to complete the trifecta. <laughs> Tariq Ali. Um, thanks very much, Mark, for those kind words. Um, <clears throat> when Obama was first elected, or actually to be more precise, during his election campaign, uh, I was in the States three or four times that year, observing the campaign, lecturing myself, talking to young people on campuses, and the enthusiasm was something I hadn't witnessed in the United States amongst young people since the 60s and 70s. Uh, when they fought in the anti-war movement to try and stop the war their country was waging in Vietnam. And the excitement, the enthusiasm was really very moving, and I was moved. And often I would be questioned at campuses, well, what do you think? And I really had to bite my lip because I didn't want to dampen their enthusiasm. And then... They won. The victory celebrations were tremendous, and we had a new president, a mixed-race president, the first time a person of color had entered the White House that had largely been constructed by slaves, slave labor. So the symbolism was important, and I never underestimated it. But finally, you get over these things, and you have to judge a politician, especially the President of the United States of America, the only imperial country left in the world today since the collapse of the European empires and the Soviet Union. You have to assess and judge an American president not on the basis of the fine words he speaks and utters, but on the basis of what he does. That always must be the criteria for judging any politician, left, right, center, whatever, what they do, not what they say. Because if you fall into the trap of simply appreciating what they say and forget what they do, you lose sight of politics and what is taking place in the world. So Obama's tragedy, if you like, though that's a bit mild. Uh, <laughs> his bad luck is that he was elected president at a time when the United States and the advanced capitalist countries of Europe were going through the most acute economic crisis, most st you know, which, which shook everyone, since the Great Depression of the 20s and 30s. That was the reality. And here now you had a choice. Wall Street had collapsed. <clears throat> what do you do? 
Bush decided that the main thing to be done was to bail it out, and Obama carried on. And it is not that there were other voices not present saying, don't do this. Voices from the Democratic Party themselves. Voices which included one of the Obama's biggest backers in terms of individual donations, George Soros, the financier. And Soros went public six months after Obama's election victory and said, this guy is a disaster. We need a new deal. I know that. I know what money is. I know what money does. But I also know what happens to a country when the poor are left to crumble. And what we need is, and I, I'm quoting George Soros now, he said, what we need is a new deal with large-scale state expenditures on huge projects to create employment. That is what we need. Totally ignored. The number of unemployed carried on rising in the year 2009. By August, the official, the official statistics said that 15 million Americans were out of work. That is the official figure. The unofficial figure, you can add another 5 to 6 million to that. People who are in part-time work of such, uh, uh, in which really is no work at all in many cases. You know, people working half an hour a day counts as being employed. So the real figures were shocking. And by the end of 2009, the uh, statistics revealed that the gap between rich and poor had actually risen in the first year of the Obama administration in favor of the rich. And this attitude of the administration of ruling on behalf of everyone, the Obama declared during his campaign, the people preferred not to notice it, but he meant it, that his favorite American president was Ronald Reagan. That this was the president he admired because he united America. Well, there are many who would disagree with that assessment, but never mind. Uh, but if that is your aim, to be like Reagan and rule for the whole people, then what it does is debases politics, really, because you're not elected to be Ronald Reagan. You're elected by a largely Democrat electorate, including millions of young people who have never voted before and who were brought into politics for the first time, and you offered to do something for them. You didn't promise much. But you did offer some things, and none of these things that were promised have been done. And that creates a cynicism which goes very deep and can become very corrosive in a society, especially in the United States, but not exclusively. And so the economic crisis continued, and the bailouts of bankers reached trillions, trillions of dollars of taxpayers' money utilized to save Wall Street. And this is a Wall Street for whom capitalism was not as it used to be in the old days, about making money from the production of things, but this was making money from money. Money that didn't exist was invested, lost, and then finally one day 
the bill came home when one company collapsed. And the notion that if they'd saved Lehman Brothers, all would have been well is also nonsense because the crisis had by that time gone too deep. Mortgage companies were closing in. There are horrific pictures and documentaries being made on poor people encouraged to buy mortgages on the cheap, not being able to pay them back since the crisis and a rise of unemployment and their mortgages being taken. But the interesting thing is this, that the difference between the, uh, the United States and some other parts of the world is that when the mortgage companies foreclose, in some areas and regions, you have to carry on paying, even though you've lost your house. So the misery was great. The immiseration taking place was on a high level, and it is into this atmosphere that you had populist Tea Party types coming and attacking the fat cats and uh, uh, playing on populism because the left was paralyzed. Obama was their president. They'd invested all their hopes in him. And when he was shown to be a rather weak president, people in the Tea Party were not, it was a combination of different things. There was libertarians in the Tea Party who were against the state doing anything including not bailing out the banks. Their line was, let the banks go under. America will be healthier. And that did strike a chord with many people. They were also the libertarians in the Tea Party. Ron Paul, in particular, was totally opposed to America's wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. He said, it isn't our business. Things that the left was unable to say were said by some of these people, which is why they got some support. One has to understand that and why it happens. So Obama, in the face of this, did not produce a single policy that could rejuvenate, re-excite, reignite his supporters. And at the midterm elections last year, he lost as everyone knew he would. <clears throat> and the reason he lost is not that the Republicans turned out in huge numbers to dwarf the Democrat vote, but many Democrats didn't come out to vote. So we were back into the syndrome of American politics. Politicians let the people down and they stopped voting. It's a disease which is spreading all over the world, by the way. Uh, and it's ironic that this disease, which is spreading all over the Western world, is uh, ignored completely by a fresh new infusion of democracy that we are witnessing now in the Middle East and the Arab countries, where you have revolutions which are demanding democracy and freedom. So it's, it's an interesting point. In terms of domestic policy, Obama carried on. <clears throat> In he, where he went back on a very clear promise he made, and in my book I outline it all, all the references are there. He had promised that at long last Americans would get a single-payer health system, i.e. the state would more or less take over the functioning of the health system and organize it. The attacks on him from the insurance companies and the pharmaceutical companies were so great that he, and so many Democrat and uh, Republican senators and congressmen were on the payroll of these companies 
that Obama, instead of fighting, going over their heads, addressing the American people as previous presidents had done, including Kennedy and Roosevelt, essentially decided to capitulate. And the woman who was drafted in to finally write the health bill was a woman who had worked for these insurance companies and was a leading lobbyist for them. She was actually drafted in to write, to, to write the bill. So the health reform satisfied no one. And you know, if you look at the amount of money the United States spends on health, it is much, much greater than all the countries in Europe and, and, and Australia which have a health service which offers medicines to those who can't afford them free of charge. The United States spends so much more than that uh, because it's paying the insurance companies and the pharmaceuticals. So their actual spending on health is huge, and the profits in this industry are huge, but the actual service is abysmal, absolutely abysmal. Then you take education. Here, seeing a crisis in the educational system, again, the instinctive response was a Reaganite response, which was, and here I'm going to quote, to go to the market. The problem with education is not that the uh, state is not funding it adequately, that teachers are being put under enormous pressures <clears throat> to do things other than teach at the schools, that teachers in state schools or public schools, as they're known in the United States, are not being paid enough, so what is the solution to all this? How to revive the public education system? Sell it off. And the man responsible, Arnie Duncan, one of Obama's close friends from Chicago, responsible for the privatization of many of Chicago's schools, <coughs> and a veteran of the Chicago Democratic uh, Party machine, was picked to run at the education system. Now, Duncan has only been to private schools. He has no experience of the state system, but he's a great believer in corporatizing education completely. His special academy which he created when he was a stockbroker was called the Aerial Community Academy, and it was set up by Aerial Capital Management. And the brochure for encouraging students to this academy, and you can imagine, as I read it out, who they were trying to attract, read as follows. We want to make the stock market a topic of dinner table conversation. <laughs> I mean, it's bad enough discussing it in the stock market, but to bring it back home... What better way to teach kids than by gifting first graders with $20,000 to invest in a classroom stock portfolio? Each graduating class would return the original $20,000 to the new first grade and donate half the profits to the school with the rest distributed among the graduates. It's not yet been revealed whether any of this money was invested in Madoff, in other Ponzi schemes, in Lehman Brothers, 
or various other dodgy outfits that exist and promise huge returns on capital. An Obama touch was provided that a voluntary extra class would take place after church each Sunday where kids could learn how all this worked. This guy became CEO of Chicago's public schools. It wasn't enough. They then decided that some of the schools, these are the schools in I, which I visited when I was in Chicago last year, last summer, and they're the poorest schools with a large majority of people going to them from poor African-American families. And some of these schools, Arne Duncan, backed by Obama, decided were to be made into naval and military academies, i.e. sold to the Navy and the Department of Defense, if you please. Why? He said, to offer the community more choice. Now, the only choice they would be offered after going to these academies was to join the Navy or the Army. And the reason they're doing this uh, is very simple, that as an imperial power, when they fight wars, in the past they used to have conscription, which was, however many people hated it, and understandably infinitely more democratic than any other system, that if you're fighting a war and you're a citizen and your country asks you, then you're, you, you, either you resist, which lots of people did in the Vietnam days and more recently, or you go and fight. But the problem with conscription is that when it didn't work, as it didn't in the Vietnam days, because large numbers of middle and upper middle class kids who went became anti-war activists after serving in Vietnam and came back and fought against the war, and the army suddenly found itself, the Pentagon confronted with a demonstration of 500,000 people saying we want the Vietnamese to win. Well, that does prove problematic. Uh, and that means that conscription can have a, a, a sort of an opposite effect. So they stopped conscription after the Vietnam War. So the wars being fought in Iran and Iraq are being fought by who? Volunteers, largely from poor communities, who are promised various things if they join, but still more and more people, instead of being, you know, are not being attracted to this because they know they'll go and die. So in order to encourage them, these schools are now being created in the poorest parts of the country, run by the military and the Navy, so that I'm sure one of the conditions will be if we give you a free education, will you serve three, four years in the Navy or the Army? That's, that's what the deal is bound to be, and thus make up for the lack of ordinary citizens joining the Army. And when ordinary citizens join, join it, you have to go and find mercenaries. And so these private armies have been created by private corporations like Blackwater before it's changed its name to something else who go and recruit ex-soldiers from all over the world to go and fight America's wars. That is what is what is happening because the support they get from the vassal states in Europe and Australia are not enough. You know, they can't do with that because it's not sufficient. They need their own standing army, and they, it, 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 it's not working for them. So Obama 
made up for not having voted in favor of the Iraq war by escalating the war in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And it has wrecked and it is wrecking that part of the world. And every single intelligence report that is being sent from Afghanistan to the leaders of the countries there says we can never win this war. We just can't win this war, so it's a question of how long are you going to stay in there and what are you going to do before you get out. And I warned in a book I wrote a few years ago on Pakistan that Mark mentioned that if you carry on fighting the war in Afghanistan, it is going to spill over into Pakistan because the Pashtuns who comprise the largest segment of the Afghan population also live in Pakistan across the border created by the British, but never as a hard border. When the British were in India and subsequent Pakistani governments, they could never enforce a hard border because people on both sides spoke the same language. So if you were a Pashtun, you could cross the border without even showing your passport. No one challenged you or questioned you, and the reason for that is that you have a border here. You have Pashtun villages on this side, Pashtun villages on this side, literally overlooking the border. They come from the same tribes, they speak the same language, they intermarry, as is normal. And the border doesn't exist for them. So to try and impose this border by force creates problems. And obviously, when the tribes on this side are being attacked, they go to their relations on the other side, help us with food. This. So the war is now spread into Pakistan with disastrous results uh, for that country and its social and political fabric. And conditions are getting worse each day. And this is not a tiny country. It's a country of 200 million people, and its military has nuclear weapons. It is a nuclear state. So to destabilize this country is suicidal. It's not simply short-sighted. And when, I mean, it's not just people like me who are saying this. Any serious American intelligence report more or less in different ways says the same thing. I mean, I was pleasantly surprised when the WikiLeaks erupted on the scene to see that the American ambassador Ann Patterson had sent a number of reports back to the State Department, more or less repeating all the arguments I'd made in my book. I'm not saying she read it, (laughs) (coughs) but it was interesting, the coincidence of arguments used, and I was quite pleased that there's some intelligence out there telling the people back home, don't do this. The country could collapse. So, That is the situation um, in which uh, uh, we find the new president. And the wars abroad have continued. And so people get upset when you say that essentially the Obama regime is a continuation of the Bush regime, which was a continuation of the Clinton regime, which was a continuation of Bush the father's regime that these are essentially governments which carry on what their predecessors have been doing. There has been no break with the previous administration. And what has annoyed venerable liberal Democrats like Gary Wills, who writes in the New York Review of Books, is the fact that on civil rights and civil liberties, 
on which Obama and his uh, men and women said that they would really change, they would close down Guantanamo, they would end the state of exception, they would make it impossible to arrest people. Nothing's happened. Absolutely nothing's happened. And we read just, you know, this week that this private Bradley Manning, locked up in an American military prison, is being tortured. And the reason he's being tortured is because they want him to confess that he sent the files, military files, to WikiLeaks and named Julian Assange. They want him to name Assange so they can extradite Assange from wherever he happens to be uh, and try him in an American court for provoking dissent within the U.S. armed forces. That's what's going on. Bradley Manning has been kept in solitary confinement, not allowed to see anyone. The first time a close friend was allowed to see him, he said he had completely changed. His personality was there. He's still not breaking. Walk into his prison cell after keeping him in confinement for days and just strip him naked for no rhyme or reason. Keep him naked, then put on clothes. It is a form of torture that is taking place there. Not a peep out of the Democrats, after all, who preside over the country and could stop it. And why do these people leak things? Why were the Pentagon Papers leaked? It always happens during times of war. The Pentagon Papers were released revealed to the New York Times during the Vietnam War. And they had a huge impact. They confirmed many things we suspected. The WikiLeaks have been leaked at a time of America's wars in Iraq and Afghanistan by a young soldier who served in Iraq and saw with his own eyes what was happening to that country and what his countrymen were doing to it and said, this can't go on. And he leaked it because he wanted the rest of the world to know. And one day he will be honored. But to make us paint these people, or Assange or WikiLeaks, as if they're the problem, just think about it. It's grotesque. The problem is what, they are, what is in the reports that they are revealing in the policies of governments, and especially the United States government, which dominates the world today. So Obama, from that point of view, is an imperial president like any other. And the fact that he is of color, it's symbolic, as I said, but it doesn't go beyond that, because you have to judge him on the basis of what he does. And none of the people who go on and on about this at length in the United States today did the same when Bush appointed senior people, African-Americans, to his cabinet. Condoleezza Rice, Colin Powell, Secretary of State. Reagan appointed a former Black Panther radical, Clarence Thomas, to to, uh, a senior position, and later he was elevated to the Supreme Court. Now, I don't agree with the politics of these people at all, and that's the only criteria to judge them on. Otherwise, you lose sight of uh, what is going on in that country. And identity becomes something so important that it transcends politics. People sometimes say, well, would it have been better if Hillary Clinton as a woman had been elected president of the United States? And I said, why? Why should it be better? She would have done the same things. 
And then people would have said, oh, well, it makes no difference, but we already know that. We've had some talented ladies in power, like Margaret Thatcher in Britain. <clears throat> like Golda Meir in Israel. Like Indira Gandhi in India. I mean, you know, they've done some wonderful things, as you know. So we don't need any more lessons like that. We need different policies. The most striking absence of policies has been in the Middle East, where Obama went on his knees before the big <clears throat> Israeli lobby, even before he was elected, and pledged to them that Jerusalem would be the eternal capital of Israel, which is an illegal thing to say because it's not accepted by the UN and has never been said in so many words by any other US president. But he said it. He was totally incapable. Every American president who gets elected says the usual things. The Palestinians are victims, but they should behave themselves. Uh, there should be no more settlements built on Palestinian lands, and we will organize gatherings at Camp David and the White House to make sure by bringing both sides together. And then life goes on just as before. And the settlements that have been constructed on Palestinian land now are at such a level that there is no two-state solution possible. That's gone. It's dead in the water. And all the pressure that was put on the Palestinian PLO leadership to cave in, to capitulate, that too has been revealed in the Palestinian documents that have come out from Al Jazeera, not in this case from WikiLeaks. And you can now read the abject way in which the Palestinian leaders capitulated to the Israeli Defense Force. So that is a, continues to be <clears throat> a running saw. It's, it's not going to stop unless some, something happens, and the only decent thing that can happen one day, maybe not in the lifetimes of many of us, is a single state in which Jews and Christians and Muslims coexist and live, as historically Muslims and Jews have done in that region and in other parts of the world for a long, long, long time. <clears throat> I mean, if we were against apartheid in South Africa, and I remember many people said that could never be overthrown and got rid of, it finally was. And you had visionary politicians who sat down together and said it's got to end. And it did. And there are many problems still, but at least that system has gone. And the similar thing needs to be done in the case of Israel. I mean, this is the sixth. No one threatens it and can threaten it anymore. It's the sixth largest army in the world. It has nuclear weapons. It has been sold the latest... German submarines, which it has armed with nuclear weapons, and these submarines patrol the shores of the Arab and Muslim world nonstop. So who the hell is going to be mad enough to attack Israel now? That is not going to happen. This is not the 50s. This is 2011. And the Palestinians cannot be left in this condition. And the more extreme politicians in Israel are saying, well, maybe we should throw the Palestinians who are still within our borders, out. Out where? And the way the United States kept this going 
was by creating a network of vassal states, regimes they backed, dictatorial regimes, of which the two big ones were the Saudi, the Saudi monarchy, and the Mubarak dictatorship in Egypt. The Mubarak dictatorship was kept going with U.S. money, billions each year, for 30 years. And it is not the case that they didn't know that the people hated this regime. Many of us pointed it out. Their own people knew. And they finally waited till the people mobilized, angered by what they saw and encouraged by the fact that the Tunisians had managed to do the same. And when they saw in Egypt that the Tunisians had managed to topple their dictator, my Egyptian friends tell me word went round in the streets of Cairo and Alexandria and Suez and Aswan saying, the Tunisians, who are the most soft-hearted, lotus-eating people in the Arab world, (laughs) they can do it and we can't? What the hell is going on? And the number of demonstrators who poured out into the streets the week following the collapse of the Tunisian dictatorship took the entire world and the Egyptian dictatorship by surprise. They killed them, not a word, from the White House. Obama gave the State of his Union, his State of the Union message while the Egyptian uprising was taking place. Not a word. Hillary Clinton interviewed, said, don't forget Mubarak has been one of our loyalist allies and Bill and I used to regard him as family. Well, thank you very much, but you might have looked elsewhere. You might have adopted someone else. (laughs) So they were taken aback, taken by surprise. And they, I mean, if you think about it, it's, it's really horrific. A special envoy was sent to talk to Mubarak by Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State. Who was this guy? a former U.S. ambassador to Egypt, who had subsequently joined a huge PR company, and this PR company had the contract from the Egyptian government for doing its propaganda work in the United States. He is sent as a special envoy to talk to Mubarak. He arrives in Cairo, and the journalists say, have you arrived here to tell him to go? He says, no, I want him to stay. Ultimately, they, they get a week's respite to see if they can crush it by force. And all over Egypt, 300 people are killed. The result, millions more come out onto the streets. Because when people lose their fear of death, then it's very difficult to stop them, really. And that fear of death disappeared in Egypt in those amazing weeks. And more and more poured out and said, you can kill us. We're not going to give up till this guy goes. And finally, he had to be dragged away, kicking and screaming. And then the new orderly transition that took place put the military in power who thought they could go on in the same old way. And they can't. Last week, the Egyptians demonstrated again and got rid of the prime minister. In Alexandria, people stormed the offices of the secret police and burnt it to the ground, including all the papers with files which had their names on it. In Tunisia, similar things carry on happening, and this whole democratic wave has now spread to the entire Arab world, and the Saudi king is tottering. 
and saying to his people, we can give you how many billions, you know, two, three billions to just keep quiet. Because he knows, he knows that it's not going to stop. It's not going to stop. And in Libya, we're seeing an epic battle taking place to get rid of Gaddafi, who's killing and shooting and killing his soldiers who refuse to open fire on their own people. And this guy, for the last 20 years, was a close personal friend of Tony Blair, part and parcel of his government, pouring money into British educational institutions like the LSE, and the whole thing is now imploded in their face. And he's naturally saying, why I've given you so much money, why are you deserting me now? Because he is slightly mad <laughs> and doesn't fully grasp what's going on, but there is a method in his madness that he knows how to hang on to power. And that is what he's trying to do. So these developments that are taking place in the Arab world are putting more and more pressure on the United States, on Palestine, Israel. Don't forget that, because one of the big arguments we have been hearing for 10 years, the Arabs aren't interested in democracy. Muslims are genetically hostile to democracy. They don't really want it. Israel is the only democratic state in this heart of darkness that is the Arab world. Well, just look what's going around in that world. It is falling, it is crumbling, and the American administration doesn't know what to do. And this president behaves like any other president and defends what he thinks are American interests. And there are many realist political scientists in Chicago and Harvard who are saying he is not even capable of understanding what America's real interests are. So we are living in exciting times as far as some parts of the world are concerned. And this is going to force some rethinking in the United States and Europe, which follows them blindly everywhere. And the Arabs who are fighting today have to, be, have to be thanked for that, as are other people who are coming out. I, I can, I'll happily answer questions because, you know, the situation in Europe, Ireland collapsed, Iceland collapsed, Greeks collapsed and had to be bailed out. But the sticking plaster that they put on as part of the bailout is already showing, has been unable to stem the blood. You can see the blood coming out again now. Because they don't institute any basic changes. They want to carry on as before. And that, the economic crisis and the situation in the Middle East now makes impossible. Thank you. I'm sure you have uh, plenty of questions, so should we begin? Uh, where's our microphone? We got a microphone here? Just here. Yes. Thanks very much indeed. That was a wonderful analysis. What you seem to be saying is essentially it really doesn't matter who is the President of the United States. 
and I would agree. But on Saturday, you also, I think, were saying, or at least implying, that we can't have both neoliberalism and democracy. And I would agree. How do we get rid of neoliberalism? Well, this is what I am saying, that you have <clears throat> at the moment a neoliberal economic system which was agreed to by the European and American elites and the rest of the world, uh, some of them unwillingly, but it was imposed on them, and this system has now crashed. And when a system crashes, you know, you have to have a serious discussion on why it crashed and what can we do to prevent this crash from occurring again. And many, many mainstream American economists like Stiglitz and Krugman are saying that these measures are utterly ludicrous and are not going to do the trick, as are economists in Britain about the austerity measures that the coalition has imposed uh, and that we need a different type of a capitalist system, more regulated, in which the state plays a role. And you know, it's very interesting. The state which the neoliberal system has been attacking endlessly, finally that state saved them. So it's fine for the state to be allowed to spend trillions of dollars saving these guys but not to spend millions of dollars providing people with a decent, basic health, education system, free running water, etc., etc. There seems to be a lot of debate throughout the American political and media that Obama is going to be a one-term president, that there's a lot of... Uh, alternatives being presented, especially from the Republicans, uh, what do you think is a uh, possible or likely outcome for the next election? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I think that for it's not impossible uh, that he might be a one-term president, but for him to be a one-term president, the Republicans would have to come up with a, another version of Obama. Do you see? The point I'm making is they can't do it with Sarah Palin. <laughs> because uh, she, she is slightly delusional. <clears throat> and they would play into the hands of the Democrats if they allowed her to be elected, because Obama would win, come romp home with a huge majority if they had Sarah Palin. And there are enough intelligent Republicans you know, whatever you might think of their politics. They're not dumb, like Karl Rove, uh, Bush's former speechwriter and close ally, who are, who's publicly said she will be elected, uh, you know, uh, she will get the Republican nomination over my dead body. So they are desperately looking for someone. Obama's problem is that since he rules as a moderate Republican, that's what he is, if the Republicans manage to find a moderate Republican, then uh, his goose could be cooked. Thank you, Tariq. It appears to me that maybe Obama's also... A Where are you? Here. Ah, oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it appears to me that maybe Obama's a, a, a victim of the same conventional wisdom that possibly many of us in this room have fallen victim to, and that is the conventional economic wisdom of the last 50, 60, 70 years which was developed out of an imperialist system and which Could you worked, speak into the mic? Yeah. Which appeared to work, but it doesn't work anymore. And yet 
if we don't change our views on economics, we're not going to change our views on political leaders. It's, I agree, and it's not just Obama. I mean, this is a disease that afflicts most of the world, including your country, that you can have two political parties. You can prefer one for cultural reasons, like you prefer a football club or a cricket team. Uh, and, it, and it's become psychological rather than political. I vote Labour because, you know, my parents did and we've always supported this particular team. And what they actually do doesn't matter at all because, and it doesn't because what they do is not different from what was done by their predecessors. And, you know, the country which pioneered this system, of course, is the United States, Tweedledum, Tweedledee politics, but it's reached an apogee also in Britain where you had Tony Blair mimicking Thatcher, inviting her to 10 Downing Street, saying we're going to be even tougher than you. And during the Blair years in Britain, the disparities in wealth between rich and poor reached astonishing heights. There's no trickle-down effect, as they used to sort of talk about. And we now have a coalition government in Britain, which has replaced Blair and Brown, which is just carrying on. And Labour can't even be in effective opposition, because when it stands up and says, oh, this is not right, they said, but hang on, we've got the documents. This is what you guys were planning. We're just going to do it more efficiently. So the Tories say we need 20 million, I'm just giving you an example, 20 million pound cuts in this department. Labour says no, 20 is too much, 18. <laughs> There's no challenge to the way in which this system is being run at all. And this could bring about the downfall, really, of democracy and democratic politics when if people in large numbers just turn their backs on it and say, carry on, it doesn't make any difference. Thank you, Tariq. Uh, my question is uh, regarding what is going on in the Middle East. In? In the Middle East. Yeah. Uh, Obama's administration and also its Western allies carry on this bogey argument that if the current leadership goes in the Middle East, the alternative is the Islamic extremists. How realistic is this threat? Please, we want your comments. I didn't quite get your Could question. You say that again. If it's a little the, bit slower. What they say is that if the current Situation. leaders leaders disappear, yeah. The alternative is the Islamic extremists. How realistic is this uh, argument? The, the extremist, Islamist, uh, Islamist. If I got you right, let me repeat it uh, and tell me if I've got you right, that if the present leaders disappear yeah. in the Middle East, the alternative, what the will the Americans do? The Americans and the, no, the Americans and the Western allies are arguing that the reason why they are dilly-dallying with this situation is that yeah. They can't support the democratic wave because the alternative will be the extremist uh, Islamist. Okay, whatever. okay, I get you. Well, look, uh, what we have to see that one feature of these revolts and uprisings, whatever you want to call them, has been that they have by and large not been led by political parties. That's a very interesting feature of them. The difference between, between the Middle East revolts and the South American revolts, which started in the 90s, is that the South American revolts were led by huge social movements which had been campaigning for 
the previous 10 years against neoliberalism, against electricity privatization, against water privatization, and it lost lives. And these social movements created political movements and parties, which then went to the people and said, we are part of these movements, and if we come to power, we will do one, two, three, four, five, six. They came to power, and they did three or four things they promised. And that in this world is, you know, quite amazing. Politicians promising to do good things and actually doing them. Whereas in the Arab world, we've had a sudden eruption, which so far has not given given birth to a new political organization. It might happen. So if there were elections in Egypt today, or in six months' time, or three months' time, I think new political parties would come up. I have no doubt about that. You would also have old parties coming up. And people talk about the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, and in Tunisia, and in Jordan, is a party that exists, what are its politics? It is not an extreme, I don't like it, so, you know, but I'm sort of just saying this to you dispassionately. It is not an extremist party. It is not a party that supports jihad or anything like that, or bin Laden, which is the fear which is normally put into people's hearts. It is very similar to the party ruling Turkey today, and Indonesia today. These are the models for the Muslim Brotherhood. So I describe them as the Muslim equivalents of Christian democratic parties, politically, economically conservative. And these are the groups who I think will collaborate with the United States. And the Muslim Brotherhood leaders more or less say it. The young so-called modernizers within the Muslim Brotherhood, basically yuppies, Uh, say to the Americans, you can work with the Turks and you can work with the Indonesians. What harm have we done you? Why can't you work with us? But the Americans didn't want to because they preferred to keep these dictatorships. The big, you know, to, to, to answer your question fully, the big problem is going to come when something erupts in Saudi Arabia. Because this is a monarchy based on the most literal uh, rendering of the Quran, Quranic literalists, if you like, Wahhabis, who are just awful. <laughs> I mean, they're just so dogmatic that scripturally even it's impossible to have an argument with them. And they have a clear fixed view. And many years ago, the founder of this sect, Abdul Wahab, did a deal with the founder of this clan, which the British Empire first put into power, And the Americans then took over from the British and have maintained it in power. But it is a minority within its own country. So there are people in Saudi Arabia fed up with it. And seeing what's going on, I mean, yesterday the Saudis banned all public demonstrations. A good sign. (laughs) But let me just finish. Uh, Because... The question is, will the United States allow this monarchy to collapse, or will they go to its rescue? My instinct is they will not allow it to collapse. It's a tried and tested method of keeping that peninsula under control, and they will send in mercenaries or troops, you know, possibly segments of the Pakistan and Yemeni armies to go and make sure that the monarchy stays in power. That 
will be if they let the Saudis fall, then quite honestly, American policy in the region is up for grabs. <laughs> yes. Oh, over here. Yeah. Um, just a question in relation to the uh, poli pol politics that's happened in Britain and also Could you Australia. speak into the mic? Yeah. Sorry. Just in relation to the politics that's been happening in Britain and Australia, how the uh, independents are taking over, um, do you think this is part of a revolution in relation to uh, democracy throughout the world and do you think it will... Uh, carry on through to America, do you think their actual um, politics, their way of voting in people will change or do you think it will just stay as from, say, the 1800s when it's first started? Um, I hope so, uh, but I'm, I don't know whether it will because, you know, people come out and march on the streets and demand a change when they've just had enough and they feel they can no longer carry on living in the same old way, that something has got to give, that conditions have got so bad. Interestingly enough, while all this was happening in Cairo, you had the first huge demonstration organized by the trade unions in Madison, Wisconsin, against the local Republican governor who wants to virtually disallow trade unionism. And for once, the trade unionists came out in America after a long, long absence from politics and defended themselves. I don't know, I think they're 20 or maybe about 30 or 40,000 people. And one of the chants was, if Cairo can, so can Madison. So, uh, you know, it's a very different situation in the United States, obviously. But unless there are movements from below, uh, that's the only thing that puts pressure on the people. And just this morning I got an email from a friend in Croatia, a philosopher, and he said, do you know what's going on in Croatia? Uh, uh, because you haven't written to me, and I didn't know. You know, I've been here traveling for the last uh, uh, few days. He said huge demonstrations in Zagreb, burning the flags of all the political parties, right? The ruling party and the Social Democrats and the European Union, Union and demanding change because they're saying we're not prepared to be ruled by corrupt elites anymore. And he said the effect, this has happened because people have been watching what's going on in the Maghreb, in Tunisia, uh, in Egypt, in other parts of the Arab world, and feel this is the only way we can uh, get rid of our government. And he says it's just beginning, and it's growing in numbers each day. I've not seen this reported anywhere so far. Yes. Um. In the long run, as Mary Antoinette discovered, is every country a democracy, including places like China and Saudi Arabia? What was the first part? Uh, could you um, repeat? In the long run, as, say, Mary Antoinette discovered, is every country a democracy, including, eventually, places like Saudi Arabia and China? Will every country become a democracy in the long run? Well, I mean, my fear is that the countries that are already democratic, we're seeing democracy being hollowed out. You know, it's a very interesting phenomenon, as I said earlier, that this struggle to have a sort of radical democracy and constitutions that 
defend not simply political freedoms, but also have inscribed them social rights, such as the right to work, the right to free education, the right to health, the right to sheltered housing. That's one of the demands in the Middle East. This must go inside the Constitution. I don't see any such movements here, by the way, or, or, or in the Western world. But I think the desire of people to have the right to get rid of a government, even if the alternative is crap, is an important right, and it will spread, I think, to Saudi Arabia, and possibly to China too, uh, in, 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 in a different way and in uh, different forms, but it won't happen uh, in those parts of the world without a struggle. Meanwhile, those of people who live in actually existing democracies have to see how they are failing. And they are failing because they are committed dogmatically to a single economic system, which doesn't permit itself to be touched or altered. That's the problem. Yes. Oh, hi, Tarek. Um, I was wondering, do you think that possibly the most dangerous um, problem currently is the fact that we only have, we have a singly dominated press in the West, mainly by Rupert Murdoch? Well, it is funny you say that because, you know, the, uh, if you switch on <clears throat> during a crisis or even at other times, CNN... BBC World or their followers in other parts of the world, it's always interests me is that the news management is the same. The same headlines, mm. the same attitudes, mm. defending the same things, which is because most of Europe and Australia and New Zealand uh, go along with what the United States is doing. So very rapidly what happens is that that media agenda of the United States is picked up and uh, carried through elsewhere. The good thing is the following, that in many parts of the world now, you have alternative television networks, so people don't have to watch BBC and CNN World. In the Arab world, they watch Al Jazeera. Mm -hmm. And in Britain, where Al Jazeera is available, on cable. Many of us watch Al Jazeera just to see what's going on. Uh, because, no, I'm telling you, the actual number of people watching the news diminishes when there's a crisis because no one believes them. So people are watching Al Jazeera and a report has just been published in the States that in, in, in the United States, this is a country where Al Jazeera is not allowed to broadcast, is not given a license to even go on cable television in the land of the free. Um, because in the land of the free, freedom is limited, circumscribed. Except to the President of the United States, who it is now publicly reported, throughout the crisis in Egypt, had two television networks. One was the American Channel and the other was Al Jazeera, switched on in the White House. So he can watch it, but American citizens can't, <laughs> lest they get naughty ideas. And that is very, very noticeable. That, And it's, you know, there is an important development, what has happened to the media, that throughout the Cold War period, when the enemy was communism, and because in communist countries you had one-party systems and a press totally dominated and controlled by those parties, 
it became absolutely crucial for the West to show that we are different. Of course, everyone knew they were economically different, but they've showed we are politically different. We allow dissident voices in our press, in our television. Look, and people did look and notice, and it was largely true. I mean, if you compare coverage of the Vietnam War with the coverage of the Iraq and Afghan wars, there is no comparison. The Iraq and Afghan wars are barely reported on television in your countries where you have troops, countries that have troops uh, in there. So, But since the collapse of communism and that enemy, they don't feel the need to do that anymore, and they've almost become like that enemy, where the voices are bland, Dissent is not forbidden, but it's not really encouraged at all, and diverse voices are not heard, which is why so many alternative networks and bloggers and alternative radio stations and Internet sites is what many people go to when there are crises and wars. Over here? Oh, yes. Uh, 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 who said? It was in an article in Counterpunch. Yeah. Which you write for occasionally on Tuesday this week. They listed the three or four networks that show our They are very small, actually. Yeah. Yeah, they are very small. Basically, what Al Jazeera wants is the same rights it has in Europe. Mm -hmm. And in Europe, it is available if you, you know, you subscribe to a cable channel. Uh, in, curiously enough, in Britain, it's available on the Sky Channel because, as you know, Rupert never rejects anybody's money. <laughs> yes, up here. We'll have a couple more questions. We'll wrap up. Thanks very much. Um, Tarek, I agree completely with your point that the economic crisis is actually much more important than Obama and the, who gets the presidency of the American but uh, the last economic crisis, as you said, was patched over and the same system, indeed the same individuals, Bernanke, Paulson and so on, are still running the show. The next crisis, which undoubtedly will come, the environmental issues will have got much more serious uh, particularly in terms of oil prices and the possibility of peak oil uh, being here. And certainly the largest issue of all climate change, the uh, inability to completely ignore this. I mean, even the Chinese are quite clear that they believe it's happening and that they are doing something about it. So it's quite possible that the next economic crisis will if not exactly coincide with an environmental crisis, it will have to take some notice of it. So it will be much more... It will be bigger. You Can you uh, respond to that, please? Well, it might well be. The honest answer is I don't know uh, whether it will be or not, but it's perfectly uh, possible. And the ecological crisis that has grabbed planet Earth is undeniable now. And the only way out of it, really, is not creating new billion-dollar in private industries, you know, designed to sort of improve the carbon footprint. But actually, if you're serious about that, it means that we have to learn to live differently in order to save this planet for future generations. And that means an element 
of social planning in the way we live because not everyone on this planet, the population explosion is too great, can live with two cars and you know, five homes and all that. So things need uh, 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 to be done. And this certainly is being discussed and incorporated in many alternative uh, discussions that are taking place. Obama very happily, just before the deep sea oil digging disaster, was saying that how necessary that is and attacking the namby-pamby green-minded people who say we have to stop uh, exploring the ocean bed. Two weeks later, it hit him in the face. Mm. And then the line changed slightly, yeah. Okay. Tariq, um, oh, if... Oh, sorry, we're, we're, we'll go at the back here first. Yeah. Tariq, right. if we could just return to the question of Libya. Um, there's a discussion now amongst the NATO powers about whether to intervene in Libya could well be the next um, US war in the Middle East. Um, I'm curious about your thoughts on that. I mean, it seems to me that the um, opposition to the government to Gaddafi is doing very well without foreign intervention um, and many within that camp don't want it. And if we were to be consistent, perhaps um, Syria and Iran should impose a no-fly zone to prevent the US sending mercenaries into their neighbours in Iraq and Afghanistan. But I'd, I'd be curious to know what you think. Well, look, in a, you know, we need to close the meeting now, actually. But I, I think what is very clear is, in my opinion, is that any Western intervention would be totally misguided in Libya, completely misguided. It will play into Gaddafi's hands. I mean, he's already been saying that this whole plot against me has been uh, organized by the Americans and the British. Uh, and if they mounted any intervention in Libya, A, they don't even know what to do. The intervention in Iraq, we've seen what a disaster that's been with a million Iraqis dead and five million orphans in that country. So I think the best thing the United States and its vassal states should do is to keep out of that part of the world. People are quite capable, even though it takes some time and they suffer casualties, of sorting these problems out for themselves one way or the other. One more question here. Tariq, will you respond? Could you respond, please, to a thesis, the combination of arrogance high level of parochialism and religiosity with an unsustainable level of national debt makes the U.S. the greatest threat to global instability? <laughs> I think you may have actually already answered your own question. <clears throat> well, it does, but I think that reports of the decline and implosion of the American empire are greatly exaggerated. Uh, it's not going to happen overnight. It's a long, long process. There's no challenge to it from anywhere else and can't be because what its weaknesses are economically and socially, it makes up for militarily. The American military budget is still larger than the budgets of the next 10 countries put together. And it increasingly uses its military strength to make up for its economic uh, uh, deficiencies and will carry on doing so unless and until there is a rebellion from within the United States. So one has to trust the American people that sooner or later they will do something. The mouse will roar. I just want to take the privilege of a final question, Tariq. What, with the... Um 
your experience from the 60s and looking at the revolutions of today, do you see a reverberation? Do you see what are the differences and the similarities between the late 1960s where you were centrally involved, what you're seeing in the Middle East today, and in other movements like Croatia? Well, the big difference is the time in which each is placed. In the 60s was a period of hope, a period that if you acted, you could actually change society, bring about huge social transformations, make revolutions, because it wasn't a society dominated by one country. It was a multipolar world that we lived in. Uh, it wasn't just the United States. And the space given by the fact that it was a multipolar world meant that many people could act and felt that they could act to change their own lives. Today, that is totally different. And it's very noticeable in the slogans of the movements uh, in the Arab world and elsewhere. They understand the world in which they are operating and moving better than many others. And therefore, they restrict their demands to what they believe can be achieved immediately and thus create a space for further changes later on, which is why I've been comparing the Arab revolutions and uprisings to the 1848 uprisings that shook all of Europe. Some succeeded, but essentially they created a tremor which carried on repeating itself till the last victories were won. And that is the world we live in, and we have to accept that. Thank you very much, Terry.